Okay, testing, one, two, one, two. Okay, very, very nice. It's great to see you today, Lance. I'm glad you decided to brave it and uh, come in and try. Let me pray for a moment. We're going to go straight to uh, Romans chapter 10. And again, we're going to be studying what Paul says about the difference between Christian and non-Christian zeal. So let me pray with you just for a moment. We'll be in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Oh, great God, mighty God of, of the gospel of salvation. You are the God who has revealed yourself and your will. You have revealed your righteousness to men, and we're grateful, dear God. Thank you. I pray for these dear men and women, Lord. I thank you for my friends and how I pray, Lord, that your word would be clear all the way to our hearts, Lord. Pray these things in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, the subject of Christian and non-Christian zeal. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul, continuing in his, it's a lament. Paul feels sad for these Jews that are in his mind. They are zealous. He loves them. He, he said in verse 1 that he prays for their salvation. They are zealous, but their zeal is like a fire that is burning in the wrong place. Their zeal is misplaced emotion and ambition. Zeal is a word that you and I normally associate with something positive. We very often use the word zeal and, and we're referring to something that we think is good. But the word really is, is something used to just explain your energy for something. When, when you get up in the morning, maybe you have some kind of ambition for the day or, or, or for the week or for the year. There's something that's compelling you. Something is, is driving you. Sometimes we use it to talk about a person's energy or their ambition for a team, maybe. Or their, their zeal for a product or their zeal for an investment. Or you can have zeal for a certain tool or for a certain politician. You can even have zeal for a diet or a, a, a technique that you've developed that has to do with your eating and your living. You can, you can have energy for these kinds of things. But Paul says, or by the Spirit, by the inspired word here, we hear Paul say that the energy or the zeal of these Jews is not according to knowledge. There's a defect and what's going on in their hearts and their minds regarding what they know. Regarding what they know. This is a, a vital matter in, in your and my consideration of the gospel. The things we know about the gospel may or may not turn into what your energy is doing. 
What is your zeal? What is your energy? This primarily is concerned about the Jew's energy, which is not according to knowledge. In other words, they know what they should know, but what, what, what fire burns and what is actually moving and stirring them is not according to knowledge. Verse 2, I bear them record, they have a zeal of God. They have a zeal of God. They have a zeal for God. We're not even talking about a false religion in, in the sense that we're thinking about maybe the name of a false deity or of a different deity. I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. I think it's fair for you and I to say that they think life should be properly on fire toward God. Or they think that a person should be properly zealous toward God. But Paul prays for their salvation. They know God's name. They know God's prophets. They know God's scriptures. And God yet reveals to them by Paul, or he tells you and I by Paul, that he knows they are not saved. Verse 3, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Can you believe Paul's assessment here? Do you think that the average Jew is ignorant of God's righteousness? It has to be. It's true. But is that how you understand them? Is that how you know this kind of unbelief? They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, in verse 3, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves. And this is part of the key here, I think. They have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. Here in our, our passage, Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are behind us. We have read through much history and, and teaching of God's assessment of men and revelation of the gospel. And this is why we, we understand quite clearly at this point in Romans why the Jews, most of the Jews, are not saved. They haven't come to salvation. Interestingly, look carefully and think carefully about what we're seeing here. These Jews desire righteousness. How do we know that? Look at verse 3. They are going about to establish their own righteousness. They even know that righteousness is, is a key element, a key ingredient to how a person is going to be able to come to our Lord. They do not have this righteousness that God requires. Do you know the difference between the righteousness of the Jew and the Righteousness that the gospel announces? Is it clear in your own mind, in your own heart? Do you understand the problem that the Spirit is revealing to us, to us here? One thing that becomes obvious as I was thinking about this passage is that all men everywhere must learn the difference between wanting what is right and having what is right. Paul says that these Jewish God-fearing people, let's put that in quotes, these Jewish people who know the name of God and are seeking their own righteousness, they seem to want what's right. They, they want righteousness. They don't have it. Do we know the difference as we must we know the difference between wanting what's right and having what is right. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul was very fast off the line here, very bold off the line in introducing this gospel to us that this is the crucial issue. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The reason he said I'm not ashamed is because many were ashamed and many would be ashamed. But he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God 
to salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also for the Greek, for in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is for men and women. The gospel is for the people of Adam who desire to have the righteousness of God and are willing to seek it by faith. That was the introduction to this gospel according to the book of Romans. So let's think just for a minute about misplaced zeal then because it seems that this misplaced zeal of the Jews is why they do not possess God's righteousness. All men who seek God and His approval, whether they're saved or not, they come to this activity of pleasing and serving God and we easily see that that I'm, I'm referring to the Jews here. They're very busy about their worship and their service of, of God, seeking His approval based on a set of assumptions. They do what they're doing based on some things in their mind that guide their worship, guide their lifestyle, guide their habits. They do what they do based on some assumptions and things that are in their minds. These Jews of Abraham and Moses, these Jews of the priesthood, these Jews of the temple, these Jews who have heard the teachings of Jesus, maybe directly. And the Spirit of God assesses them here. I think it was uh, Natalia and I just recently thinking about the, the line in the book of Daniel about being weighed in the balance and being found wanting this is their state. This is the state of these Jews. They know so much about God and His Word. And even about what's right and wrong, they have strong opinions about what's righteous and what's not righteous. Good morning, guys. We are in Romans chapter 10. We're right in verses 2 to 3 here, talking about the righteousness that God requires. And we're talking about Paul's sadness that the Jews who are zealous for God, do not understand how to have God's righteousness. They're weighed in the balance of God and they're found wanting because they do not possess God's righteousness. And actually, very critically, very importantly, do you see that the word is that they did not submit to God's righteousness there in verse 3. They did not submit to it. So grab a hold of the meaning of that word. We're, we're going to come back to this point. But when, when you or I or when any man's heart is in a place of not wanting to submit, there is something in us that resists submission. It's just in our nature to not be eager to submit. We'll have a look at that in a moment here. The Jews... God's Spirit is informing us of here, verses 2, 3, and 4. They're zealous. They have energy. They're on fire in some sense. They're motivated for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. And so let's take note of this. Why is it? Why, why is it that men can be on fire and yet their knowledge actually keeping them from fully possessing what's pleasing to God. How is it that their knowledge can, can be stunted or ignorant of what it is that's, that's required? This is a very serious question. We are seeing a serious religious person here, aren't we? Aren't these Jews we're considering here zealous? Doesn't that mean they're into it? Doesn't that mean that they're going after it in some sense? They're a serious religious person, but they're not saved. And the Apostle teaches us what is misplaced. The Apostle teaches us how they are out of whack. He tells us the difference between believing that there is a God and believing God for eternal life. 
tells us the difference between these things here. The presence of a zeal for God is not an indicator of salvation. Their zealousness doesn't mean that they're Christians. And God in His mercy says these words to those ones. It's a, it's a kindness of God to say, look, you're, you're on fire, you're zealous, but it's, it's in the wrong place. Fire is being used for the wrong thing. The fire is sitting in the wrong place. Sometimes in our inexperience, our being young people or immature people in the use of fire could use fire incorrectly until our father or our mother taught us how to use it correctly, taught us what it's rightly for, taught us what it's not for. This is a similar thing here. Zeal is not an indication of of salvation, but rightly applied, it obviously can be pleasing to God. So we're going to speak for a moment now about the difference between zeal and the, and the need for humility. What kinds of zeal can be pleasing to God? The kind of zeal that is accompanied with humility can be pleasing to the Lord. So unfettered zeal, un unequipped and unprepared zeal may very well mean that the person goes to worship regularly like a quote-unquote faithful Jew. They go to synagogue. They bring their offerings. They're zealous. They, they're there for the public reading of Scripture maybe or maybe even a person who attends church in the same way, reads their Bible, goes to church, maybe even witness to some people that you meet. There's, there are certain things that you and I associate with zeal for God, and it would be these kinds of things. Energy toward, toward serving the Lord. The Bible actually has many examples of people who have been on fire for the Lord or very zealous for the Lord. A famous one, please turn to Acts chapter 9. This is one of the great, great examples of what we're talking about here, misplaced zeal and a need for humility when it comes to apprehending God. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 we're introduced to Saul, who is actually the writer of the letter that we are studying here, the book of Romans. Saul, before he was a believer, is being spoken about here in Acts chapter 9. So this is the Apostle Paul before he was a Christian. He says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, in the early weeks and months of Christianity in Jerusalem, he hated Christians so much that he got permission, he got legal permission to go find people who were of the way. It's called the way because... Um, they didn't even know the word Christian yet. It wasn't part of the believer's vocabulary. So they're called members of the way. And Paul wanted to go get them and bring them back to jail to be punished in Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad is a, uh, a, a, a vegetable-like item. It's like a gourd with little spikes on it. And you could use this gourd to tap your beast of burden on the shoulder or on the back, and it, it would be prickly. It would hurt him. And so when God is asking Paul here, is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? The question means, Paul, you have been resisting me and my people. You've been working against me. Has it been hard for you to do so? 
Paul, do you know I have been resisting your efforts? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So he, trembling, it says in verse 6, and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So here is Saul. I bring him to your attention, considering this concept of both zeal and humility. And, and we all need to realize what a very, what a terribly humbling moment this was for Paul. What kind of sickness do you think he felt in his stomach and in his heart? What did Saul feel like when he realized that his very powerful ambition and zeal for God was completely amiss? What did he feel like and what did he think when he discovered by the, by the mouth of God's own testimony to him? What did he think to hear these words of God telling him that he had been dead wrong and that he had actually been an opposer of God? What kind of words to himself, what kind of things did he begin to understand in his own life, in his own heart when he was realizing how he had been living in these weeks? how he had been behaving in these weeks and in these months. Did he realize that God might have killed him already because he had actually made himself an enemy of the Lord? Did he think for a moment, I can't believe it. God would have killed me and could have killed me and he would have been perfectly right for having done so. Paul would have known that he had been malicious to a people, the Christians, that God actually had made for himself and was protecting for himself. Paul would be realizing some things like this. Paul might also have thought back to a time in Acts chapter 5. I'm sorry, I'm going to refer to something in Acts chapter 5 in a second. But do you remember or do you know that, that Paul was there when Stephen was killed? The, the people who were beginning to throw stones at Stephen to kill Stephen, they laid their clothes down at Paul's feet. His name is Saul there and they lay their clothes down there so he's, he was going to be the guard of the clothes. So did Paul remember that time and how, how approving he was of the killing of Stephen and did he realize that he actually was involved in the murder of one of God's special servants did Paul think about that for a moment here and feel sick to his own stomach did he remember some of the arguments that he may have been making against Christians. Surely he would have been in arguments with Christians telling them what fools they were, telling them how they had misinterpreted the scriptures, telling them how they were wrong about Jesus Christ who had claimed to be the Son of God and the Messiah. Did maybe Paul even worry for a moment? Did he think, man, maybe I sent some people away from thinking about Christ. Maybe I scared them off. Maybe I convinced them that they shouldn't think about Christ. And what if he is actually the Savior? What if he's the Messiah? And I sent them away, unbelievers. Another thing I, I thought of here was in, in Acts chapter 5, you're you're shown who a certain ruler among the Jews was. His name was Gamaliel. And this Gamaliel was probably the great teacher in Jerusalem in this day. He was the a, a great elder scholar, Gamaliel. And in Acts chapter 5, it says, um, it's verse 34, one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And Gamaliel spoke to his fellow rulers with the apostles in another location, and basically Gamaliel said, look, we better be cautious with our treatment of these men. Gamaliel was suggesting some restraint in being 
too brutal or too prohibitive toward these men. So you, you discover this great man Gamaliel here who is suggesting some moderation towards these teachers of the new way. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul said, I am indeed a Jew born uh, in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers. And so I wondered, maybe there had become some sort of wedge between Saul and Gamaliel, the great, great teacher, the older man Gamaliel. Maybe Paul had even challenged Gamaliel and thought him foolish for thinking that Christ might be for real. These apostles might be the real prophets. I don't know what, what Paul was thinking when he when he realized that he had been resisting God himself. This is what I'm getting at. Paul, looking back on his life, this is where you and I should think real carefully here for a moment about the difference between zeal and humility. Paul was as on fire as you can be, and he had made himself an enemy of God. And as he reflected back on, on the months, maybe even years, leading up to this meeting of God on the road to Damascus, it must have been incredibly humiliating to him for him to realize how low he had become, how strong he was in his opposition against God. Humility is always something that comes to a person who comes face to face with the true and living God. A teachableness. An understanding that God isn't quite who he thought he was. Proper zeal must be brought to real humble reverence to God. A real teachable posture toward God. True zeal must be one who hears God's word. Must be knowledgeable of how badly we need God's mercy. True, God-pleasing zeal will be humble and totally dependent on the Lord. Now I'm going to compare God's righteousness and man's righteousness just for a minute. There is a big difference between man's righteousness and God's righteousness. And this is one of the main subjects in view here. The, the Jews are pursuing a righteousness of their own and they wouldn't submit to God's righteousness. So what is the difference? Well, one of the things you already know from the earliest lines of the book of Romans is that if you don't possess God's righteousness, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Think about man's approach to righteousness, how men go about being righteous and God's righteousness. Think about the difference between these two things for a moment. I, for many years of, of my life, I've done tradesman kind of, of work. And I think all of you have experience in remodeling your homes or doing contracting or or labor for people that we end up working for. Have you ever completed a very complicated task, a task that may have taken you two or three or five or ten days or a month, and then realized that you made a, a major error early on the job? Have you ever done something and looked back and go, oh man, I did something wrong at the very beginning of this job. And it make you sick. I, I, I can't imagine Dan rebuilding an engine or, or Greg rebuilding a bathroom or it's any of these kinds of projects. And when you realize, oh no, I did something wrong so long ago in this project that if I do it over, that's going to take me all month. If I have to do this over, this is going to cost me some serious money. Not to mention how embarrassed 
I'm going to be by telling the owner of the project that I got to go back because I made a stupid mistake early on. And so all, all men and women with the different tasks that we take on, we will be faced with the possibility of having to redo something that we may or may not want to redo. We're going to look for alternatives. Maybe, maybe there's some way of not redoing it. And the decision will be influenced by how much money it might cost you to redo it. It might be influenced by how many hours it would take you to redo it. And since you and I and all men are made, we're born in, in Adam's line, we cannot make this decision untouched by a few considerations of ourself. We, we will think about ourself in this process. We will automatically be brought to think, hmm, what should I do? Part of it might be your reputation. Part of your motivation to redo it and make it right will be to preserve your reputation. So in a sense, that's just total selfishness, your, your reputation. Maybe that's part of what goes through your mind, this consideration of self. Sometimes it'll be self-desire. Sometimes you'll be motivated by, well, I don't really feel like putting in 50 hours to redoing this thing. It's just too hard, and I'm not going to get financially compensated for it unless you find some way of wiggling around it and double billing your customer, and then you got to live with your conscience on this one. So sometimes your self-desire will, will get involved in this process of, of your thinking about what's right and what's not right. Sometimes this self-realization, sometimes you realize that what has actually happened and what needs to be fixed cannot be fixed. So what I mean is what has been done is done and the fix cannot be undone. Maybe you built a bridge or maybe you did wiring in a home and the bridge failed and someone died or your wiring was so faulty that something caught on fire and a home burned down and, and somebody was injured. You can't undo some things. Relationships can be so badly botched and broken with your unrighteousness, you can't totally go back and fix it. So as men look at our degrees of righteousness and unrighteousness, we, we sometimes find ourselves stuck thinking, well, it is what it is. I can redo some of this, some of this I can't redo. And all men will settle on some standard that we feel is going to have to be good enough. We feel that what's been done has to do, it has to, it has to be good enough. And the Holy Spirit teaches us here as, as the Jews who have learned to seek their own righteousness, that means they're settled in it. That means they decide this is going to do. God is going to be content with this. When we get to the, if they weren't convinced of that, if they didn't know that, then they would be seeking God's righteousness. They would be seeking more. They would know, but they're settled. They, they are satisfied with their righteousness, whether or not it has been right or wrong. They, they've decided enough is enough. What more could we do? So I wanted you to look at Psalm 24 with me to look at one little window into what the Jew has been taught about God's righteousness. Psalm 24 speaks about a, a man, and it could be a woman, who is contemplating go up to God's holy hill, which is where, where the temple is in Jerusalem. Who can go up there is the question. 
Who's worthy? Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who could go up there? Or who may stand in his holy place? And that's his temple. That's God's temple, his tabernacle. And then the answer is this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So we're looking at a person contemplating their worthiness to approach the Lord and to go into his temple. The clean hands and the purity of heart, they, they refer to hands that have done no wrong. And they, they refer to their innocence of, of theft or of harm or of misconduct. Your hands are a, a reference to what you do, your works. Who can go up there? A person whose hands have done right. Also speaks about a heart. A heart that has been pure. What is the heart's motives? What are a pure heart's rightness? A, a person whose heart has been right. A person whose heart has been desiring to be pleasing to the Lord and upright before the Lord. Is his motive been free from the desire to impress others, to be seen and admired? Or is his heart simply motivated to honor and to love God? The person contemplating going up to the temple is thinking through these questions in the psalm. His purity from idolatry is also considered as he never put his hope in false idols, as he never found joy in the idols of the world that make promises outside of God's promises. Purity from all deceit. The last line is the last phrase, nor sworn deceitfully, never lied, never misrepresented the truth, never told a white lie. God's righteousness in the Old Testament was never a low standard. And you guys know this. God's, God's standard of righteousness was never a low standard. It's a standard that not only looks at the deeds of men. What do you do with your hands? What do you do with your life? God's standard of righteousness looks at that. But it also looks at a man's motives. It also looks deep inside of his heart. God's righteousness is hands, heart, mind, our devotion to the one who created us. It looks at all these things. And... Those who properly understand the holiness of God, those who really know who he is and what, he, what he's like, they never imagine that they meet this standard. And it's evident here in the psalm. Look at the fifth verse. The fifth verse of the psalm says, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Good conduct of hand and heart before God still leaves a man needful. To see that, even though this person, they, they, they know that it's right to go before God, right. Don't go before him as a liar. Don't go before him as a deceiver. Don't go before him as a blasphemer. This still leaves a man needful of righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see that there in the psalm? And this is why the Jews had an offering system. This is why the Jews had a temple. I hope you're following along here because this is so important for you and I to understand. God always had the standard of perfection before the Jews. What do you do when you lie? What do you do when you did something that burned a building down and somebody died? What do you do when you sin? You bring a repentant heart to the Lord. You bring an offering to the Lord. You have thank offerings. You have sin offerings. You have guilt offerings. And God made the temple so that men had a priesthood where you could bring your gifts when you're seeking forgiveness you can bring your gifts, giving God thanks. 
And yet the, the psalmist here says, what is required? These good things before the Lord. How does he stay good before the Lord? How does he stay right before the Lord? He keeps short accounts with the Lord. He says sorry when he's offended the Lord. He, he brings his offerings. He's a faithful, God-fearing man. And what does he know? Look at that fifth verse again. The fifth verse says, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Where does the God-fearing man get his righteousness? It is a gift from God. The righteousness of God is a gift from God. And we learn in the teaching of the New Testament so clearly. We learn here in the book of Romans that righteousness is the gift of the man for the man who puts his faith in Christ. And Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our hope entering in the kingdom of God. Let's think about the Jews' submission here just for a minute his ignorance, not only is he ignorant of the righteousness of God, which is what it said, but it also says he's unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God. Some men understand some of God's righteousness. I would even say all men understand some of God's righteousness. But to submit to God for all of your righteousness is one thing that keeps many men from the kingdom of heaven. Unwillingness to submit to God's righteousness. I hope you're listening because this is a really crucial thing about the gospel. Think about what it would mean to submit to God's righteousness. Verse 3, Romans 10.3 they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The Bible teaches over and over again that God's mercy and promise includes his righteousness like we just read in the psalm. The scripture says over and over again that his promises and his mercy his gift of salvation includes the gift of his righteousness. Look at another example in Luke 18 with me. We've looked at this a couple, two or three times over the years. Luke 18. Look at these two different men and how these men approach righteousness. And look at how the Lord Jesus reveals what real righteousness is and where it comes from. Luke chapter 18 at verse 11. Now you're going to see a picture of you in this passage. There's two men here. When you're reading about these two men here, try to see which one is you. Okay? It's a very helpful picture. Verse 11 says, A Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. So here's his prayer. Here's who he sees. This is what he thinks. God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And he kind of looks over to the right or the left and he sees this low-life tax collector off to the side. Standing afar off, it says, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. The tax collector beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. He went back home justified. He went back home righteous. You see that? That's what that word justified there means. Rather than the other who is the self-righteous man. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Both of these men are zealous for God. Both of these men have something to say. They have ambitions toward God, can you tell what they are subject to? These Both of these men are subject to something. Both of these men are submitting to something. One man seems to be utterly underneath God's holiness. He is utterly abased by it. What that means is he's, he's, he's shamed by God's holiness. One of these men 
has a view of God's holiness and he knows he is so far beneath it. Do you see that man there? He knows God is holy and perfect and he knows in his own heart, he knows the thoughts of his head and, 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 and the matter of his life and what does he see? He sees himself a sinful man. He is subject to God's righteousness. The other of these two men seems to stand alongside of God's righteousness. He seems to find himself approved by God's righteousness. Buddies with it. Almost like he's saying, I am exactly what you request me to be. Can't you see that I, that I am what you have required of me? So you who would come under God's righteousness, you who would be properly submitted to God's righteousness, you must first properly identify it. You must know how high and how holy and how great and how righteous is the God of salvation. We must know that about Him. And when you properly know, when you begin to know God's holiness how truthful the truthfulness of God is, how utterly adultery-free God is, an eye and a heart that never wanders into lust or into covetousness. This is what the Lord Jesus meant when he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he revealed, he said that, that you say a man should not commit adultery. But I say, if you have looked at a woman to lust, then you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. The Lord Jesus raised the bar in his preaching. Why? So that men would rightly see the righteousness of God. And they would rightly see themselves low and unrighteous. So we must properly identify the righteousness of God. And it shames us. Just as the tax collector who prayed in Luke 18. When he rightly considered the righteousness and the holiness of God, what did it do to him? It shamed him. It humiliated him. But what were his words? What words did he bring to his God? He was subject to this God of righteousness and he says, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Properly knowing is God's righteousness understands how high and how pure and how holy He is and seeks Him for His mercy, seeks Him for His forgiveness, seeks Him for His righteousness. Do you see that? Seeks Him for His righteousness. We don't come to God with a righteousness of our own. If you burned down somebody's house or if you killed somebody who was in a crosswalk or on the side of the road, you bring your acknowledgement of your sin to our God and you say, God, have mercy on me. I am so sad that I am a sinner, God. I'm so sad, God, that I, I, I lie or I, I stole. God, I repent of these sins. Your righteousness is what I need, God. His righteousness humbles us. His righteousness exposes all of our thoughts, all of our actions, and we see ourselves tainted and stained by unrighteousness. So Paul is saying that the Jews have not learned to seek the Lord for His righteousness, have not submitted themselves to His righteousness. Before we go on to the last part of this section, which will be, it won't be next week, it'll be in another couple of weeks, he tells, he teaches the Jews here in the end of this, these next couple of verses, of how it is they are supposed to seek the righteousness of God. So if you look at your Bible, 
just for a second. He says, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And it's going to take some explanation for me to tell you what he's talking about there over the next two lines. The righteousness of faith is what righteousness the Jews do not have. It is the righteousness that they would not submit to. But the scripture here says that Christ is the end of the law. All of the perfection of the law, all of the law that humbles you and I, all of the law that exposes our unrighteousness, its end is Christ. In other words, all of your shame, all of your lawlessness, all of your unrighteousness finds its final and ultimate answer in Christ. You are revealed to be a sinner by God's law and by the very righteousness of God. And it is to lead you to Christ. In other words, if you are to possess a righteousness of eternal life, it is found in the person of Christ. He is the Savior, not an example of righteousness. He is the embodiment of righteousness. He lived all of the righteousness that you could not live. He is the satisfaction of God's requirement of righteousness. So when we read there in verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. If you hope to stand before God righteous, you must learn what righteousness says. You must learn what righteousness believes in a man, and it is this, God, I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, please accept my humble request for forgiveness. And God, thank you for the righteousness that Christ has given by living a righteous life. God, thank you for making a way that I could come before you in righteousness. This is the gospel, and this is the righteousness that God requires. It is the Christ. It is the Savior. It is the righteous one. That's why he's called the Lamb. That's why he's called the Savior. He is the one who has become all of our righteousness. Let me take a minute and just pray with you, and, and I'll commend you to the Lord. Almighty God of heaven, how we thank you that... The bar of righteousness is so high that none of us could hope to reach to our own righteousness. God, thank you that the perfection of the law and of Jesus can only humble us and bring us to a humiliated knowledge of ourselves, of how needy we are, God, and how we thank you that the Lord Jesus himself is all of our righteousness. He is all of our boast. He is all that we could bring to you, dear God. He is the only one that we could hope in for eternal life, Lord. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his righteousness, God. In his name we pray. Amen.